Our scripture reading today is from John 3, 1 through 16. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can, an no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of the earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like our PR department is falling asleep during our weekly talks at youth group. So, uh, so hold your emails. We're good. Um, <laughs> put your phones away. Um, I have had a doozy of a morning. I woke up, not only is it Youth Sunday, so, you know, it's like herding cats. Um, woke up today, and my wife goes, did you mess up our car? No. And so we went in there, and it looks like someone broke into our car this morning. And, of course, Bob goes, yeah, it sounds about right for you. So that's just kind of the day that I'm beginning, that I've started. And uh, then I come here, the first service, and I get to hear the students sing how God loves them. And I get to hear their testimonies of what God's doing in the youth group. And uh, just overall, just getting to see um, them in front of you. Showing them, showing you what God's doing, and that's awesome. Day changer. So, I'm feeling good. I hope you're feeling good. We're going to jump into the Bible. Uh, but before we do, I have been uh, thinking about love languages. You thought about love languages in a while? It's a book from the 90s where this guy decided that he, uh, he was going to help us love each other better by giving categories. So I can tell you, hey, by the way. I'm really a person who likes physical touch, so I need more hugs. Um, or, hey, I'm a person who uh, really likes gifts, so I'm going to need a big one, right? Um, <laughs> those sorts of things. It's a way, it, I'm, I'm knocking on them. I know it's done a lot of good. I'm, I'm just kidding. Again, don't write any emails. Um, and, uh, but they're great way to explain until you get hooked on them, right? As a way of relating to your loved one. And of course, that sort of thing happened to me. 
I found out early on that my wife liked little gifts. Uh, and then one time in passing, um, she mentioned that she liked it when I made her lunch. Um, so I filed those away under use always. And uh, every time we had like an iffy moment or she had a bad day, I would just throw a gift at it. That should work, right? Um, and then whenever she was like, you didn't do this, or I dropped the ball on something, which never happens, um, I would always say, yeah, but I made you lunch, right? That doesn't work. Don't take notes on that one. Um, it does not work. Turns out um, that uh, there were plenty of other ways I could have been being present and loving her. Um, one way that she loves is when I draw pictures. Um, just literally any picture, because she's an artist and I'm not. She likes to watch me struggle to draw basic things. <laughs> I'm just glad she's not a runner, right? So, <laughs> you guys laughed way too hard at that. Uh, I could have just paid attention to what her needs were day to day, because people don't fit in boxes, right? The way I need love today or the way we will interact today is probably different than tomorrow. And I'm a lot, and not because I'm either going to change from today to tomorrow, but I'm a lot more complicated than that, right? My wife's a lot more complicated than, I got you this. Hopefully this does it, right? This fixes everything. Um, we are a lot more complicated than that as human beings. But I had dropped the ball. I latched onto a system. I sometimes put more value in going through the motions than being present. But isn't that so easy to do in relationships? We take good things and make them the thing. And then we just go into like relational autopilot. I think it's because it's easy. And navigating relationships is hard. Right? Because people are complicated. And life is complicated. And so when you're trying to stay attentive, you find something that works for you. And you stick with it. And eventually, it just, you lose the authenticity, and it, and it just becomes a habit. In today's reading, we meet a guy who's part of a system that has done that to God. And to be honest, this scripture is so, is used so much, I think we, end, we even tend to go into autopilot when we read it. I mean, you can miss the profoundness of John 3.16 and the surrounding verses because like, dudes are, like, putting it on their eye on sports games or, like, people have it in signs or it's on someone's back, right? It's like John 3.16 is the verse that non-Christians have memorized, right? Like, it, John 3.16 is just the verse that just, it gets so watered down because we just say it so much. Part of my prayer today is that God will dust off this scripture for us so that the good news within may hit us with deeper understanding of the grace and life being offered us. And part of how I thought we could do this this morning is to dig into the person of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the guy who's having the conversation with Jesus that John is talking about. And at the beginning of John 3, we're introduced to this dude. And uh, I'm probably the only pastor who says dude, right? Um, at the beginning of, uh, we're introduced to Nicodemus, and uh, he's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So that means that he is a zealous rule follower and the one who makes sure others follow the rules. And oh boy, were there a lot of rules. There are 613 
commandments in the Bible alone. And they have had these. So as a young child, Nicodemus uh, would have committed those to memory and he is living those out. Well, on top of that, Pharisees um, created this thing called uh, the Midrash. And this was a way to kind of, it was a commentary about the law that was supposed to help you follow the law to a fuller way and a more worshipful way. The problem is these additional teachings had kind of turned more into laws. And so this meant on top of 613, there were thousands of other laws. Example, the Mosaic law is uh, one, of the, one of the commandments is keeping the Sabbath, right? You don't uh, work on Saturdays. Uh, you rest. And so to clarify this, Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what work means. And then within those 39 categories, there were subcategories. So to follow the rule of not working on the Sabbath, there were literally thousands of rules inside of that. And even some of them being how many steps you could take. Right? Ah, no. No. Okay, I'm sleeping here tonight. Right? Like that. Or how many letters you could write. Uh, I'm not going to be able to sign my name. Um, all of those things happened. And the Midrash was supposed to help people. It was supposed to help them worship God in a full way. And its intention was so good. And still to this day is used. But at this point, we find that Jesus walks onto this page and points out that people had lost the heart of the law. I mean, I, I can imagine being a rabbi, getting a million questions of what qualifies for work. And I say... Well, here are 39 ways, right? This is the way you get, can definitely apply and follow the law that God's telling you. Before you know it, it becomes about getting the law right rather than loving God. They had lost the heart and it became mindless rule following. And so I think it's really easy to uh, vilify and beat up on Pharisees. Been doing it since a kid in uh, Sunday school, right? Had a little like felt. Pharisee, and we'd be like, they're the bad guys, right? Um, you remember that? Um, and because uh, they got caught up on things. They were legalists. They were the antagonists to Jesus. They even killed Jesus, right? Bad guys. But I think if we can stop and try to relate to the Pharisees a bit, it will further re reveal how, f how powerful the coming scriptures are, no matter where you are at as you approach it. The first thing, when I think about Nicodemus, and I think about being a Pharisee, and how I have those tendencies, I think uh, I can relate to the idea of control. Not so much controlling God, although I have had some prayers that sounded a little bit like, you better do this. Um, but I think it's more the figuring out the exact method of loving him in the rubric I'll be graded upon. Right? This is the thing that, like, wears us out. Because I think I'm not the only one who does this. I talk to people who do it all the time. Right? This rubric, I'm trying to figure out how to get God to love me. And so I've created this thing, and I'm trying to figure it out. And um, it brings me peace to know exactly what I must do to make God happy. So just give me the rule. Give me the formula. Let me do it. But this leads me more to focusing on pleasing God rather than trusting God. Another way I relate to Pharisees is comparison, right? Even if I'm not perfect, 
there are way worse people in the world, right? There are way worse, more annoying people than me. And at least I'm not as bad as the other guy. And it's especially as e- is easy to do within community, right? Jesus even points this out. He, call, he says, you know, you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you got a tree in yours, right? You are able to see, if you ever think, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy, you may be pulling a Pharisee. Um, hashtag pulling a Pharisee. Um, it's, uh, during all of that comparison, though, I'm missing out on my very own desperate need for Jesus. Pharisees appear to have it together, but inside they are a hot mess. And that whole killing Jesus thing, they may have been part of crucifying him, but to quote the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was me. And if you're not a Christian... Perhaps your uh, understanding is a lot like the Pharisees, where you've been told uh, that there are prerequisites to gain entry into the kingdom of God, that you need to get it together, that you need to somehow solve a set of problems before you can enter in the church. Or perhaps shame from things you've done has led you to feel unworthy of love of people or of God. I've been there too. And I think this scripture says something to all of us in that. Whether you are, whether you think yourself a rule follower, whether you think yourself a rule breaker, whether you feel like you're on the inside or on the outside. I think John 3.16 is known because it's one of those verses that speaks to us where we're at. So now I want to see how Jesus Steps into the situation with this dude. We're told Nicodemus approached Jesus. He comes at night. And we could read a lot of things into that moment in which he enters. Uh, He could be sneaking around trying to not be seen by the other Pharisees. And this is like one of the top three most important people within the Jewish community of Jerusalem. Pretty big deal. And he's sneaking around if he is. I don't know. It just says he comes at night. But he may be sneaking around because the previous chapter, Jesus was turning over tables in the um, temple. So they're still cleaning up that mess. So maybe he's like, better keep my head down while I go talk to Jesus. Um, He also could just be, uh, maybe he couldn't get to sleep and he decided he wanted to go talk to Jesus. Either way, he shows up at night. And he starts off, off by buttering Jesus up a bit. He calls him rabbi. And Jesus is a rabbi. But he's not one of their rabbis. He didn't train with them. He doesn't roll with them. He's not a part of the in crowd. But he's still, this head honcho ends up coming to him and saying, Rabbi, we know, he says we here, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He's like, we heard about the wine thing you did. And, yeah, we want to know how you did that. You must be from God. We'd like to hear a little more uh, uh, details about this. And so uh, Nicodemus, before Nicodemus can even say the next thing, why he's shown up at night to talk to Jesus, he says, Jesus speaks. 
And he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And at face value, seems a little weird and a little random. And Nicodemus is a little thrown off. And I don't know if he's like trying to like give Jesus a hard time here, but he basically he responds and says, ah, you want me to crawl back in the womb? Like that doesn't work, Jesus, right? He's a little bit thrown off by this born again thing, right? Old people don't get born again, Jesus, just a little FYI. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again of spirit and water. Here he says in this section here, he says, your flesh, what you were born into, so Jews at the time believed they were the chosen people. What you've done, that's not the measurement. It's not good enough. It's both easier and harder than what you think it is, Nicodemus. It's easier in that all this rule following and counting your steps and writing a certain number of words on a Sabbath, that's not the standard. The prerequisite for coming into the, uh, for entrance into this kingdom isn't how well you follow the rules. Because guess what? Not even you, Nicodemus, can do it good enough. Not even you, Nicodemus, are good enough to get in. Just letting you know. Sorry about you. And it's harder because it involves you becoming something completely new. The new prerequisite is that you are born again into a new person. It's not something you can just conjure up. Just like the wind, this change and its effects are felt, but you don't control it. To which Nicodemus, again, I think he's maybe trying to figure out, oh, wait, what do I do? What do I do about this? What do I do? He says, how can this be? How can I make this happen? How can this be? Jesus replies again in verse 10 through 13, if you're following along. You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people don't accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Translation, you've been serving God your entire life. And you're the one who's supposed to lead the people. And when God is standing right in front of you, you don't see him? Nicodemus, I'm right here. You said I'm from God. I'm here to tell you I am God. Listen to me, Nicodemus. I know these things because I am the one. You think salvation is a birthright. You think it's something you can, or something you can earn by following the law. But I've come to show you that the only way to get into heaven is to believe in the one who is from heaven. So to answer Jesus or Nicodemus' question fully, Jesus then hits him with a, a story that he'd be familiar with as a, as a Jewish man who had memorized the, the Torah. And um, he says, uh, he quotes numbers. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So he's referencing Numbers 21. 
where the Israelites were plagued by these fiery serpents. Okay, they've like not been trusting God. There's a period of unrest. And all of a sudden, these fiery serpents showed up. I don't know what they were doing. But they show up at the camp and they begin to attack the Israelites. And if they were bitten by one of these fiery serpents, they're on their deathbed pretty shortly after. So they plead with Moses. And so this is how it always goes in the Exodus story, right? Uh, They plead with Moses, do something. Moses pleads to God, do something. God does something, right? So God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a bronze serpent. I want you to stick it on a pole. I want you to put it up in the middle of camp. And he he uses the term, lift it up. I want it to be lifted up. And anyone who was bitten by the fiery serpent merely had to look upon the bronze statue. And they would live. They were healed. They got new life. So Jesus says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Just as the serpent was lifted up on a stake to bring the people life, so Jesus would be lifted up on a cross to give all who would believe eternal life. The phrase lifted up is chosen deliberately. Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And in doing so, would be lifted up to God. Jesus is glorified by being crucified. And for those who would look to him, believe in him, they are offered eternal life. So John, the gospel writer, stops telling the story then and launches in to a little sermonette. He says... For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. My fellow legalists, rule breakers, Status trackers, lost people who need to be found, found people who have gotten lost, members of the world, you are loved by God. Hear this, that God's first move was out of love. That the gospel doesn't happen because God's angry. Jesus doesn't come because God's mad. Jesus comes because God loves. And God loved first. The Bible later on says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God's love happens first. And it is the reason for the gospel. The love of God is limitless. It embraces all of mankind. And no sacrifice was too great for God. He gave his one and only son. And this is not for one group to hoard. But it's to be offered up to the whole world. And it's not merit-based. Based on whether you're a good Christian or a bad Christian or a good person or a bad person. It's given to all of us. It's not for those of us who have it together. It's for those who place their faith in Jesus. It's for those who come and say, okay, I don't know, but I'm willing to follow and I'm willing to trust. 
So my fellow Christians in the room, we need to be reminded daily of this good news. And remember, it's stinking good news. May our works come as a response to his love, not to earn his love. Faith is a scary thing sometimes. There isn't an exact science to it. There's not a formula we can just give. But Jesus has come so we would know him. And just like in any relationship, it's about the knowing. It's about the being present with him. We have that opportunity to learn him. We would relinquish control and approach by faith. In humility, we can call out to him in prayer. We can seek the scriptures. And as a community, we're trying to figure out how to follow God. And we believe he's faithful to us. And for those of you who may not be there yet, whose journey has not led you to faith yet, I just want you to know this. God loves you. And he loved you first. And he'll keep loving you. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And there's nothing you have done or will do that will change that. And he comes offering life. That you would not perish. If you want to take him up on that offer. If you want to ask questions about it. If you want. That's, well, that's why we do this. So if you would like to talk to me or any other staff. We'd love to start the journey. We don't have all the answers. But we're not afraid to start that walk with you. So after John, you see, John never finishes, the gospel writer never finished the story of, Nic- of what happened between Nicodemus and Jesus. But Nicodemus comes up two other times within John's gospel. I don't know for sure how he responded, but what I do know is that the third time he shows up is immediately after Jesus died. He joins this guy, Joseph, and he brings the spices for burial. And they do the customary preparation for Jesus' burial. I'm not sure exactly what the conversa- how the conversation ended. Or how much time it took for him to realize who Jesus was. But I'd like to think that this was an act of love and of faith. And not just one of custom. Will you pray with me? God, uh, thank you so much for this morning. For the fact that you are alive and well in the lives of young and old. And God, that you offer us life pray that we would uh, seek you in the midst of that, God. That we, would, for ourselves, would not create the formula, but that we would trust you. God, pray that we would be light in the world as you have been light to us. And may we not grow weary of doing good or following in faith. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.